Jeremy, as Maeve said, we're delighted to have you with us this evening. And perhaps you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your family. Sure. Uh, I live in, uh, in Kent. Three uh, adult children. Our daughter just got married three weeks ago, so that was a really happy day. And uh, she's an academic. Um, she's uh, doing a PhD in uh, medical anthropology. Oh, wow. Maybe wow. partly driven by her father's uh, <laughs> various illnesses. And then uh, two boys, yeah, Matt just graduated. Um, he's working in a startup in the Canary Wharf, trying to reinvent the internet, I think. And then Sam, my youngest, seems to be mainly studying cricket, although apparently he's meant to be doing geography. So <laughs> and, um, and we've already heard you were the, uh, the former CEO at Ford Bank, so you've had an extensive um, banking uh, career. I mean, I, I imagine with some of the people in the room that they'd be quite interested to hear about some of your reflections, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis, yeah. and what more you think um, might need to happen. Well, that's a whole other topic <laughs> into itself, isn't it? But uh, first of all, to work with uh, the Hall family mm. was tremendous fun. They're a wonderful family, uh, 12 generations of family owners, and they run the bank in a very philanthropic way. The, um, the motto of the bank is treat the customer as you would wish to be treated, which is, of course, a, a Christian value. It's mm. built on the golden rule. Now, not, that, not all of the family are Christians, but this uh, ethos of uh, doing good and giving lots of money away is, uh, makes it a wonderful place to work. Yeah. Um, before that, I worked for maybe somewhat less reputable uh, <laughs> large banks. So, yeah, I was, uh, in 2008, I was working um, uh, yeah, for Credit Suisse, actually. Sorry to mention that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, private banking is an interesting uh, area to work in. Um, and I worked, had the, you know, working all over the world, which was, which was very interesting. Um, I guess one thing I, I learned there was that being very wealthy doesn't make you happy. Mm. In fact, um, many of the wealthiest people, I would say, in the world are kind of actually pretty miserable. And money can make you happy, but it can also make you make you sad. So that, that was a sort of instructive lesson in human nature. Yeah, and in yourself, do, I mean, do you think there are any particular things that we can learn post the banking crisis as well? Right, probably leave that to, uh, to the, the, the learning company here. <coughs> I did actually a few years ago, um, John McFall, I think, had a, a parliamentary inquiry and actually they summoned a number of the challenger banks. I mean, we, we were a rather old challenger bank, Hall Bank, it's been around for 350 years, so if we are challenging, it's taking, uh, taking a long time. Um, definitely, I, I think a good thing we would say from the perspective of challenger banks is to create a more level playing field and um, allow some of the smaller banks, there's also a number of ethical banks and those banks are sort of crowded out. And I, I think since the 2008 crash, the regulators have uh, really encouraged those small banks. And um, yeah, hopefully over time, I mean, there's also then an element of um, people voting with their feet. So if customers say, no, I, I don't like what's going on in the banking system, and um, this, is, this is wrong, and then go to other places which offer a different type of banking, that, that will make a difference. So um, I think one of the problems before the crash was it was almost impossible to find anything new or different, and that has, that has changed since. But look, there's a lot of, you know, I don't, I'm not in any way attempting to defend the banking system, and a lot of bankers have done, you know, really wrong things, and um, yeah, look, the taxpayer has basically bailed out the banking system, which is, is shocking, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, in terms of, I'm sure we could have an incredibly lively discussion on that topic, but we haven't invited you here to talk about policy implications. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, Jeremy, we know that you're a Christian, um, did you grow up in a Tell us a little bit about sure. your um, yeah. Christian faith. No, I, I did. My father, who was um, a 
vicar or pastor for nearly 50 years in the same church in, um, in Midtown in Hertfordshire. He, he was rather eccentric, like a, like a lot of vicars can be. And um, every summer he used to take us uh, Bible smuggling behind the Army Curtain into the USSR and other places. A typical that, family holiday. Yeah, I assume that's what we all did in your family. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we would drive off uh, my parents and four young children between about one and nine. So it was quite foolhardy in a way. In fact, some people told him he was... Um, <coughs> some friends of his said, Johnny, you shouldn't do that. But he, he thought that's what God wanted him to do. And what struck me as a, as a youngster, this was sort of around 1970, so it was a long time ago at the sort of height of the Cold War, was um, when he went to these places, uh, some countries were, were not as oppressive, but some, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, and especially the USSR, to be a Christian, you had a massive cost there. And um, you would go um, to this church in... Uh, Lvov, Novgorod, Moscow, Rostov, and you, so you weren't allowed to go over until you go to certain places. And outside the church would be the KGB, and they just sit in the car and just take down details that are all going in. And if you were a Christian, then um, you uh, yeah, couldn't get a job, you couldn't go to university, you couldn't get housing, you were generally discriminated against. So that made quite an impression on me, because I thought, why on earth are these people doing it? There's every human reason not to do it, every human reason not to go to but um, the only explanation I could think of was that because it was true, otherwise why would you have to be stupid to, to, to do that? So the, the basic courage and um, yeah, willingness to suffer of these, uh, these ordinary Russian Christians was, was very impressive. Wow, and um, is that the point that you came to faith yourself? No, I think I used to annoy my father terribly. I mean, this bishop, bishop here, he's probably got the same one. I used to uh, provoke my father from <laughs> praying to say, tell him the Bible Each one has its own characteristics. 
why cancer is such a complex disease to try and, to try and beat. But the prognosis was quite good, and um, they, uh, I went through all sorts of operations and radiotherapy, and then after about six months of different treatment, um, the hospital said, yeah, you're all clear, it's fine, come back every three months. And then for the next two years, every three months, and then even every six months, I went back and they said, everything is fine. So that's it. Over time, you begin to sort of detach from it. I thought it wouldn't be here, but anyway, that was, uh, <laughs> that was my experience. So you thought it was all clear, you thought um, it was dealt with. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so about, uh, well, I can remember, it was um, just after the last, the last of one general election, just at the end of May 2015. I was at a friend's house on a summer's evening, it was hot, and I went to move my collar, and as I did that, I felt a really large lump, like a golf ball, not like a pool, on my collarbone. And immediately, in three seconds, they say your whole life changes, because I knew immediately what it was, that, that it was a cancer. And uh, I made my excuses, and uh, said, I'm sorry, I don't feel well. I said to my wife, I've got to go home, and in the car, I told her. And um, then I went back to the, to the oncologist at the Marsden, and uh, he ran various tests, and then the new dates kind of stick in your mind. The 13th of June, Friday the 13th, appropriately enough, um, I went back to the Marsden, and, and um, you, know, you, you sit in a waiting room, and uh, they say, please come through. And when you go in, it's not good if there's about eight people in the room. And yeah, you don't want that. So they said, um, look, we're really sorry. We don't know how we missed it, but you've got half a dozen tumours. They're kind of large. They're everywhere. And we can't, we can't cure you. Um, and then, yeah, the obvious next question is, well, how long have they got? And, uh, yeah, 18 months was the answer. But, hey, that was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but that's a really hard thing to be told. It's like being punched in the face, I would say. And I, I, I burst into tears. Yeah. Yeah, I, really, I, I, I don't want to die. I'm a Christian, and we'll come on to that in a minute. Yeah. But I really don't want to die. I don't <laughs> want to live. <laughs> and yeah. um, the hardest thing I think about cancer is the part of is the physical difficulties and so on. But it's the impact it has on your family. So my wife was there sitting next to me, mm. but then I had to go home and tell my children. And uh, some of them were at university, so we had to kind of drive around the UK. Told my sisters and, and my mother, and everybody go, you're sort of spreading gloom <laughs> and despondency, and it really upsets people, and my goodness, a typical thoughtless man, uh, the person who was planning to question me was my mother, who's 85, and she said, if only it was me, you know, and that's just really moving, you know, if only, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to die, but you're young, I mean, you, should, you should live, so that was, that was really hard, and um, from then on, basically, cancer takes over your life, so the first thing you think about in the morning, of course, is, yeah, I've got cancer. And uh, I've been through lots and lots of treatment. Um, I've been through uh, 24 different chemotherapies. Yeah, it's a pity they don't give frequent flyer um, <laughs> <laughs> points for that. And um, I've also had, if you read about, you know, a sort of uh, NHS crisis, I'm personally responsible for it. But I've also had terrible problems with my eyes. And uh, in fact, for a while I was, I was blind. And um, I had detached retinas in one eye after the other. So I had to be sort of led. I've got three charming sisters. One of them said she'd take my arm and walk me around London as long as I had a badge saying it's my brother, not my husband. I thought that was charming. <laughs> sisters for you, right? And um, yeah, that was, it's been really, it's been really hard. And um, I've just finished chemotherapy, uh, yeah, just two months ago. And I, I go every six weeks for a scan. If you've got any questions about what's it like to be in the hospital system, you know, 
I can bore you for hours about some common features to cross away, do I go for my eyes or for marking? Um, and it's really hard, yeah. But I'm also very happy to be alive. And I, hence it's a strange disease, because I look fine. But um, yeah, every time you go in, you get a, every six weeks you get a scan and they show you 3D images of the tumours. My wife likes to look at them, actually. She finds them interesting. I, I don't. I like to avoid them. Well, what have you found is most hard in this, in this period? Um, well, I think it's an acid test of one's Christian faith. Because I was a Christian before this. But it begs the question, do you really believe what you say you believe? Because it's quite one thing to be theoretically believe that when we die we go to be with God, as I do believe, but quite another when you're confronted. What was it Dr. Johnson said? Being hung in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. So, um, yeah, maybe dying in a short period. It really focuses on, is it true? Is the Christian faith something that's reliable and trustworthy? And I mean, you know, how has your... How have you sort of dealt with these questions during this period? I mean, has, has it led you to question your Christian faith? Or? No, I think it's, it's driven me much closer to, to God than before. And um, someone said that God does his best work in storms, because in storms he has our attention. There's a story in the Bible, some of you may know, where Jesus is asleep in the boat, and uh, the disciples uh, are terrified they're going to drown, so they shake him roughly and say, don't you care that we're going to drown? So in suffering, yeah, the, the temptation is that we doubt God's character, we doubt, we doubt his love. But what I found is the amazing, incredible presence of God, which I never had before, probably because I was up to, yeah. up to banking of all things, but in, in cancer, yeah, when I've, you know, I've slightly lost count of how many operations I've had, and when several times when I've been wheeled in and just about to give you the sedative to put you under, I felt amazingly the power, the presence of Jesus and the, 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 the power of God in my life. I mean, I mean, that seems extraordinary. I think a lot of people think you know, when they're faced with suffering or there's so much suffering, they're like, oh, how can they keep God allow yeah. such things? I mean, how, what's your experience of, of well, that and what, how would you respond to that? A man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer that some of you may have heard of. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor um, in the 1930s. He was one of the brave few who stood up for Hitler and uh, fought for the, to, 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 for the Jews and lots of German Christians turned a blind eye. And as a result, he was sent to a concentration camp. In fact, he was executed just about two weeks before the end of the war. And almost the last thing he did was he smuggled out of his concentration camp a little piece of paper like this. And on it he'd written, um, only a suffering God can help us. So I find that, for me, really powerful. And that, that, that is an extraordinary um, thing, which, which I believe is true, that God became a human being So it's not that God somehow knows about everything and therefore you know, knows it in a sort of um, abstract way. No, God, I believe, has experienced, has experienced suffering. And uh, suffering far worse than anything I've, uh, I've been through. Um, so that, that empathy and sympathy of, of the God-man, Jesus Christ, I find personally extremely powerful. But there is one difference which is that I, I don't really have a choice, unfortunately. It's one of the things about cancer, you have no choice, you just have to get on with it. So he had a choice. He could have at any moment said, I, I don't want to do this. So wh why did God suffer? Because he loves us, that's all. That's the Christian belief. So for me, that, you know, what I'm looking for in suffering is a, is a person. 
you know, not, I mean, the, the question of where does evil come from, why does God allow evil, it's a difficult one. And I, I think of many things we might say, we think we can talk about this if we want in the questions, but that, that, that maybe aren't answers to some things. I mean, some things we just have to have humility. There's a man also in the Bible, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, Job, who um, yeah, goes through all kinds of terrible suffering. And what does he want more than anybody? He wants, he wants an advocate. He wants a friend. He wants someone to represent him to God. So this sense of yeah, the presence of God, the reality of God in suffering, I find, um, I find amazing. Yeah, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that you've found that has been a particular comfort um, during this, this time? I think um, I've found God's word amazing. So many wonderful promises in the Bible, and um, yeah, just give you a few examples. Yes, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Or perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible, or the first famous chapter, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. So sadly, God doesn't offer to do us a bypass round <laughs> And the valley of the shadow of death. I wish he did. That would be a lot more convenient. But he doesn't. No, we all have to. That's part of the human condition, isn't it? Death, and you, you mentioned that we're reluctant to talk about death, which is strange because it's the one thing in life that you can't avoid. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers, famously said that you can avoid anything in life except death and taxes. Having worked in private banking, it's true, sadly. But you can't, you can't avoid death, can you? But we really don't want to. Uh, <coughs> we, don't want, we don't want to think about it. A man called Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, said human beings will do anything to avoid, excuse me, to avoid thinking about death. So we'll, we'll, we'll fill our minds with all sorts of other things. But the Christian claim is that there's hope in the face of death. And um, I, li I like to think of it maybe this way, that um, going to be with God is a bit, I've never been, but apparently the Seychelles are great, and it's a fantastic destination, so that's being with God. To get there, you have to go through Heathrow Airport. That's, that's death. <laughs> right? So it's a, complete, it's a complete mess. But the Christian hope is there is, there is hope beyond the grave. And um, that's, you know, that's also part of what um, Jesus did when he, when he came on earth. I mean, he went around confronting death. There's a story where he met um, a grieving widow and, um, in a little town called Nain, and her only son had just, uh, just died. It wasn't in an age with uh, social security, it wasn't in an age with any kind of safety net. So this woman is alone, she's bereft. Death is carrying off her only son. And as they leave the town, Jesus is coming the other way and he meets her. And he does an extraordinary thing, which is he touches the, the stretcher, the bier that the boy has been carried on, which um, would be a very unusual thing for a rabbi to do because you make yourself unclean. And he then says to her, um, don't cry. So I guess what, how that speaks for, for, for me is that God cares about us in suffering. He has compassion on us in our messed up, screwed up world. And um, he then does something amazing, which is he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And he gives her back to his mother. So what I believe is that um, there's hope in the face of death because, um, because Jesus conquered death. Um, maybe an unlikely person to quote um, Eddie Izzard, <laughs> the transvestite com uh, comedian. But he gave recently a very moving interview in the Guardian newspaper where he said, um, 
All my life I've been traumatised by the death of my mother from cancer. Aged, um, it went when I, at years old, was nine, and I've never got over it. And uh, if it's only someone had once come back from beyond the grave to tell us that something then, we even made a joke, you know, that it was a nice spa or something. And uh, I was so moved when I read that. And uh, yeah, that is the Christian claim, which is that, yeah, one person actually did come back from beyond the grave. So for me, and I, I'm not cured now, I'm basically I've kind of given up my whole my life expectancy <laughs> he doesn't know and they've all discovered now um, I've got a uh, completely unrelated second type of cancer at the last specialist I saw said I had some of the strangest symptoms she's ever seen <laughs> so I, I just sort of live from, from month to month um, from scan to scan and uh, yeah I put my trust in the fact that there's one person who's come back from beyond the grave so you're putting a lot of hope in the fact that um, there is life beyond the grave I mean, some might say that that's kind of wishful thinking or yeah. a nice comfort blanket. I mean, yeah. how would you respond to no, that? No, that's a really fair question. Like, I, I really understand that. And uh, yeah, I think it's called whistling in the dark. You know, if you're walking down a dark street and you think you might get mugged or something or pulled down a pothole, which uh, can happen, um, then uh, yeah, you sort of whistle or hum a tune to yourself to cheer yourself up. And maybe some of you are thinking that. But uh, yeah, if I was in your position, Jeremy, and maybe when you have a short while to live, I might think the same. So I, I guess but you, you have to decide this for yourself. I mean, I can't impose my views on you at all. The question you have to answer is not, is it helpful? Because of course it is helpful. I mean, if you think of what's the alternative, um, and if, if you're of that point of view, I want to thank you very much for coming. But you know, our friend Mr. Dawkins, he says, it's all about defective DNA. There's uh, nothing we can do, just bad luck, bad DNA. Um, just DNA. I think he says, DNA has no emotion, no feeling, it just is, and we dance to its tune. So of course, but it's the Christian claim or, or other faith views that, that there is something beyond the grave are, um, are very helpful. But the key question is not, is it helpful? The key question is, is it true? And you're clearly convinced it's true. Yeah, the reason I'm a Christian is I believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that Christians love to squabble about, and sometimes we're our own worst enemies, aren't we, when we talk about what Jesus is. But this, to me, is the central claim of the Christian faith, which is the reason I believe that is um, borrow a, an expression from uh, Sherlock Holmes. I don't know, you know any Sherlock Holmes fans here? <laughs> Silver, Silver Blaze. Master of the Sherlock Holmes family. Silver Blaze is one of his best known stories. It's one where um, Holmes didn't say elementary might be a Watson, although he did say apparently he did elementary um, In it, sorry, there's a spoiler alert coming. Holmes <laughs> solved the, the mystery of the racehorse being, uh, being disappeared. Um, so Watson, you know, he's the sort of super-sized teacher. He's like, that's incredible, Holmes. How did you do that? And Holmes says, well, having eliminated all other possibilities, whatever else remains, however unlikely, must be true. So I would argue that's the same for the Christian claim about the resurrection, that any possible other explanation that the disciples stole the body, that they made it up, that the Roman authorities, for some reason, spirited Jesus' body away, or that he didn't die at all, don't, don't to me make sense. And one very convincing thing I find is that not all of them, but many of the eyewitnesses then died painful deaths in the immediate aftermath. And within a few weeks, they're standing there saying, Jesus is risen, so why would you do that if it wasn't true? Um, and it's not just a historical fact. It's also something that I personally experience now, that I experience the risen Jesus Christ today. So it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. 
Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. It's really helpful to hear your honest account of what it's like to, to face cancer and, uh, and um, the suffering that you've gone through and just how your Christian faith is, is helping you in this.